Good morning. It's going to be hard to top that. Jeez. Oh, happy Father's Day, everyone. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> and they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So as we are continuing on with the story of God and his people, uh, we're still in, well, we are in, uh, we're coming into Ezra now, coming into those prophetic books, which seem to be taking up all of my time lately. Um, which the great irony there is that I've always kind of avoided them, not because they're not important, but because I never really understood them very well. So I had a tendency just to kind of skip over the prophetic books and just move on, you know, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then I got really obsessed with the epistles, so I started reading all the readings of Paul, or all the writings of Paul. And now almost every Bible reading program I'm involved in right now, which is several, is in the prophets, and that's where we've been in Sunday school, and that's where I'm coming into now, and I feel like I'm just being immersed. I wouldn't say drowning, because drowning is a hopeless term. I'm finding a lot of blessing in it, but it's somewhere that I've never ventured of my own free will before, so it's, it's new and exciting. I've read through them, but that's exactly what I was doing. I was reading to get through them. <laughs> anyway, so... What we have as we come into the book of, of Ezra are people coming out of captivity. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about people going into captivity, going into exile. And then last week we looked at Daniel and we're still going to talk about Daniel a little bit this week. And then we're moving on into Ezra. Now, something that came to my attention as I was trying to put this together is when you look at Daniel, you see someone who is very obedient to his circumstance. And I kind of glossed over that last week, and I think that was wrong of me to do, but I, I didn't become aware of it until later. Um, Daniel very much had a spine, and so did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they very much stood up for God and they stood up for their beliefs and they would not bow down to false gods. But in all other ways, they actually served to benefit Babylon. They were obedient to that call of Jeremiah to uh, actually help the government, to pray for that, that government and to pour themselves into it and to make it thrive. And I didn't really even notice that, but I hadn't mentioned a thing about that. Um, and I think that there's an amazing thing we can model out of that story. Uh, whereas you see the atrocities that often take place in our society. And you can be a part of the government. You can be opposed to the government. Or you can do that third thing. Like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they try to make the world a better place for the society they're living in. But they will not compromise their belief in God. And I feel like I really missed a good moment to share that. But 
Now is as good a time as any, isn't it? So I suppose I didn't miss it. It was just postponed. So that is what I meant to end chapter 18 with. <laughs> they, Daniel and exile. Then if I were moving on to return from exile in chapter 19 of the story that I'm using as an outline, I'm going to read from chapter 1 of the book of Ezra. And if I need to tie this into a Father's Day message, my father loves the book of Ezra. You're welcome. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he also put it into writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of all Persia, all the kingdoms of earth, the Lord God of heaven has given to me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judea and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, with all whose spirits the God, that God had moved, arose to go up and to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had put into the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shazbar, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. And all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shazbar, excuse me, Shesh Bazar, goodness, took to the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. You know, I could say that name earlier today. At least I thought I could. In chapter 2 of Ezra, we have a lot of numbers. It's counting out the people that are returning. I would encourage you to read that on your own. In chapter 3, worship restored at Jerusalem. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities and the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem, then Joshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, and his brethren, arose and built an altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacle as it is written, and they offered daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinances for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for new moons and for all appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid, they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which had come from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second month of the second year of the coming to the house of, the, of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, and the rest of their brethren and the priests and the Levites and all those who had come out of captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and old and above to oversee the work on the house of the Lord. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee the work on the house of God. And the sons of Henadad with the sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, for he is good. His mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept out with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout from joy and the noise from the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far off. I thought this was kind of neat, that this is where I am on Father's Day. Because something that comes inherent with uh, being a dad is housing projects. They are never-ending. Never-ending. There is always something that needs done. Ah, and here you have a group of men and their sons rebuilding the temple. But what's more important than that is when you look at chapter 12, we can see something that is very real to all of us. Is when they uh, finally laid the, the foundation of this temple, the people that had never seen a temple of God shouted for joy because there was a temple for the living God, and this is amazing, and it's gonna be like it was. But the old men among them wept for sorrow because it was only a shadow of the temple that had been there. And they both shouted so loudly that you could not discern the difference between the two. And if that doesn't reflect what it's like to talk to a younger man 
when an older man and a younger man are talking about the same thing, a lot of times their perspective has changed a bit, where the older generation looks at what once was, and they remember how wonderful things once were. And they lament that it isn't that again. Yet those who have never known what once was can look at something new and see the glory of God so clearly. And I, I see that modeled, well, not modeled, I see that repeated a lot in church conversations where a lot of people that I love very much that remember a way things were done and they have it kind of elevated in their mind. They're like, you know, we used to do this. And there's a lot of times where you'll see people in youth groups that'll be very excited because of what they're doing now and how wonderful and exciting it is. And they feel like God is moving there. And if that's my only takeaway from this, that wouldn't be the best. But, <laughs> but it just struck me as, as uh, being something that we see repeated just throughout time. People that remember something that was grand that is no longer there. They kind of miss the blessing of what is happening now. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, <laughs> king of Assyria, who brought us here. I am butchering these names as per usual. I am aware. <laughs> but Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build the house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, there is a lesson we can take from that section of scripture that we probably will want to revisit before we ever replace the carpet. But you do know the carpet is getting older all the time. Churches split over that argument sometimes. So let's just keep in mind. That sometimes I don't even know why I brought up the carpet. That was kind of a silly thing to do, but. Sometimes the people who don't get their way, these people were very excited to hear people were building a temple to God. And they're like, well, we also worship God. Let us help you. And when they were not allowed, when they did not get their way, they put all their energy into frustrating the plans. And unfortunately, I know more than one of us in this building has seen that play out in a church scenario where someone didn't have things go the way they wanted them to. And so a little more energy went into seeing things fail than possibly getting along. 
Carpet's not that bad yet. I'm just trying to prep it, laying the groundwork. In a decade or so, we're probably going to want to replace the carpet, though. And I don't want to fight about it. I just, well, maybe we can appoint someone just to pick. I don't know. That would be Mennonite-ish, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. So they have this opposition to building the temple. And someone actually comes up. Well, excuse me. Here we go. People start to focus more also on building their own houses. Think building the temple becomes so frustrating that a lot of people just decide, you know what, I'm going to go build my house. You guys figure this out. When you're ready, call me. We'll, we'll get started again, which really is what most of us would do, too. If you had moved to a new place and you were trying to build the church and all the government officials and stuff and all the state inspectors kept making life really, really hard. You'd be like, all right, you guys handle it when you're ready to build, call me. And that's exactly what they did because people are people and they've always been people and they do people things. Hmm. All right. So in chapter five, we end up with, uh, it talks about the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, which have their own books, by the way. You can see there in your bulletin um, what, what chapters and those books tie into this. And I would highly encourage you to visit that during this week. <clears throat> then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judea and Jerusalem in the name of God, the God of Israel, who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tataniah, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Banzniah, mm -hmm, and their companions came to them and spoke to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and to finish this wall? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing the building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till the report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned copying or concerning this manner. This is a copy of the letter that Tatania sent the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethzar Bonsnea, Bonsnai, something like that, and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea, to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which the great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, 
who destroyed this temple and carried away people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build the house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried to the temple in Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple in Babylon, and they were given to one named Shesh-Bazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these articles, go, carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Shesh-Bazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction, and it has not been finished. Now, therefore, it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build the house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So they're concerned that these people are building this temple here, and they decide, you know what, we're going to ask if they're allowed. So they send a written request to Darius the king, saying, did Cyrus really tell them they could build here? I want you to look in your records, and I want you to get back to us to what you would like us to do. So then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Archmetha, in a palace that was in the province of Medea, a scroll was found, and it was a record. It was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it firmly lay. Its height, 60 cubits, its with 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber, let expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also, let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposit them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatania, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnia, I have said his name different every single time. I hope you're reading along because otherwise you're not going to know who I'm talking about. Shethar Bosni. That sounds right. And your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from the taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to those men, so that they were not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs, and burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the requests of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hung on it. Some, some translations say, let him be impaled on it. Let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. 
and may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. So all of this opposition opposition that they're getting for building the temple now actually goes away because for the second time they have a king that says, no, rebuild this house. But did you notice in this response, he says, so that they may pray for the king and his sons. They've seen that this God is powerful and they would like his blessing. And I think that's as far as they've thought it out, to be honest, because you don't really see these pagan kings turning from their ways. But they do recognize that God is powerful. And they would like very much to be in his good graces. In verse 13, and I know I'm reading a lot, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. The way I'm pronouncing the names, that probably is a bad thing. It's not because I didn't try to practice them either. I don't want you to think that I didn't put any work into this. I'm just having that sort of morning where all my letters are. Um, well, they're not in Russian, but I assume Russian would look a lot like some of these names. Is that a backwards N? Anyway, um, then Tatanea, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai, yeah, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido. And they built and they finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So this has been six years. This is now in the sixth year they finished the temple. It was in the first year of the rule of King Darius or Cyrus. So this has been longer, sorry. It was in the first year of King Cyrus that they actually were told to build a temple. So this has been a long chunk of time. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of captivity celebrated and dedicated the dedication of this house, the house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, they assigned priests to their divisions and Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for the brethren of the priests and for themselves. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the lands in order to seek the God, the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned their heart, the heart of the king of Syria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So God has brought a remnant of people 
And you see throughout scriptures that when they went into exile, a certain number of people just assimilated to the culture. They became Babylonians. They didn't fight it. They're just like, oh, new gods, new way to live. Okay, we can do that. There were people that rebelled and probably got themselves killed. Then there were people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel who tried to peacefully live and be faithful to their God while living in a foreign land. And I believe that these people that came back out, when the king gave them an option, I want all these people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God. Those that were living faithfully in captivity or as best as they could, that would have been a very uh, liberating moment in your life to be like, we get to go home. But then you go home and you see that your home no longer is there and that glorious temple has been completely destroyed. And so you build a less wonderful temple. Which actually gets built into a monstrosity of a temple with King Herod because he built just this gorgeous temple. And then we have this entire idea of a temple. The temple is really just a symbol of God dwelling on earth. It's a place where God can dwell. It's where heaven and earth can connect and God can dwell. And all of this really is a foreshadowing of what is to come and what has come, where now this entire temple system, God is dwelling among us through his son, Jesus Christ, who is also the priesthood. And we actually get to see that fulfilled. But along the journey, going from worshiping God in a, in a tabernacle and worshiping God in a temple to worshiping God here on a Sunday morning or in the woods on Saturday morning or wherever we're worshiping God throughout the week. You see this, this journey that God's people were on where God is shaping us to understand what he's doing and how he works until he can ultimately fulfill all of these prophecies and all of these promises through his son, Jesus. I am, uh, I'm also taken by the number of people that are mentioned here in the heads of the father's houses help to take control of these situations. They're the ones that led the effort to rebuild. Because something that you see a lot in scripture is that people are always thinking of the next generation. And I don't know exactly when in history we stopped doing that. But people were always considering their children and their children's children when they lived. And you can see that very clearly in the way they talk about their fathers. Well, the fathers they're talking about were hundreds of years before them. And their children sometimes that they're referring to are thousands of years after them. So I think I think there's something that I can really take from that as a father, as a father being called to be the head of his family. And I know that is an outdated thing to say, culturally, but as a man who is supposed to be the head of his family, that isn't an oppressive head. I'm supposed to be helping to lead and pastor my wife, right? With love. 
and to come along beside her and lift her up and carry her along with me, not to hold her down and tell her to make me a sandwich. We sometimes get that backwards. One of the funniest uh, speeches I ever heard given at a bachelor party was by an old theology professor who had the same voice as Sean Connery, so everybody paid attention when he talked. But he told the kid he said, that was getting married, he was probably 20-nothing years old. He was about to get married at Bible college. and The professor just said, just remember, if you love and cherish your bride as Christ loves and cherishes the church, you will have no more problems with your bride than Christ has had with the church. That was a side note. Didn't cost you anything, I hope. But the model we're supposed to be following as fathers and as husbands is we're supposed to be a representation of Christ to our families. We're supposed to be pastoring and leading our families, right? And like I said, that isn't a hold down relationship. That isn't a power over. That's uh, coming alongside and lifting up. But I can see these men who were heads of their family taking charge and actually trying their best to rebuild this temple, even though they got sidetracked and even though they were working on their own houses. In their humanity, I can see myself. In God's faithfulness, well, God's faithfulness is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I can see men coming to finally understand what they're supposed to be doing. And I can hope that for myself. I can pray for that. But as fathers, when we're thinking about what is to come next, our time on, in life is short. And Pauline shared something beautiful during Sunday school today where you really only have about 30 years to live as an adult by the time you've grown up and slept. You really, <laughs> you've really only got about 30 years to live as an adult. And how are we using that time? Because, and I believe another figure she threw out was what, seven years of TV watching. So now you're down to 23 years. If Netflix came out with a really great show, you might be down to 20 years. How are we spending that time? How are we building the temple? How are we building God's church with these living stones in the time that we're actually given? I am hoping that someday, which won't be very long in reality, because as I like to say, my daughter was born yesterday and she's 11 now. So time is passing very quickly. She wasn't really born yesterday. Just some of you look confused. But it seems like my daughter was born yesterday and she's 11 now. I can't remember a time when I wasn't married, but it seems like my wedding was yesterday. And that was 15 years ago. Life is very short and passes very quickly. But soon I'll be gone. 
right? That's just the truth. Soon I will be gone. And then my daughter will be here, I hope. And she'll have a family. And I'll be a memory. And soon she'll be gone. And I'll be a fading memory. What will I have done in my 30 years that matter? Because that is the call of every father in the kingdom of God. What have I done that matters? I can grill a pretty good steak. That doesn't have eternal value. That'll be remembered for a generation. Someone liked one of my songs once. They might show it to their kids. I might get two generations out of that. If I live the rest of my capable adulthood as a teacher, maybe one of my students will do something that really benefits the kingdom of God, and that has eternal value. Will my daughter raise godly children? That has eternal value. Will my wife feel that her needs are met? Will my my wife feel loved and supported and not just thrown into anxiety and like the world's been heaped on her shoulders and I expect her to handle it? Because oddly enough, that has eternal value as well. How I treat you has eternal value. Whether the pirates ever get to keep one of the players they spend all those years cultivating has no eternal value that I'm aware of. All these little distractions. But to try to avoid just giving this as a Father's Day guilt trip, I'd like to tell you about a legacy in my family where my grandfather, my father's father, My father's father was a godly man, but he didn't always want you to know it because he didn't talk much. He was just, you know, he was from the John Wayne generation. They just were kind of tough and they didn't speak much. But he lived in a way that was very serving. And for the last 10 years of his life, he spent about three hours a day praying for everybody in his family by name. And he called all the heads of the house every single day because his wife had passed and she used to do it and he knew it needed done. That is the legacy that has been passed on to my father. My father has worn out the gold on the side of his Bible pages. That is the legacy that he has given to me and to my sister and to my brother. My sister is married to a pastor. My brother is a pastor. I am now a pastor as well. There are legacies that fathers pass down to children. Not every legacy is a tragedy. I could just as easily point out the legacies in my family of alcoholism or criminal behavior, but why don't we focus on something that we can see God in clearly? My father's father, the one I said, lived a very godly life. His father, his father was dedicated to the church. He was a one-legged man, which I find fascinating but he lost his leg in a train accident. That sounds so made up to me because that's so outside of my realm of context. He walked to work every day on a wooden leg where he worked at the forge. That kind of hard-headed immigrant manliness was part of my grandfather's legacy. 
and that's part of my family legacy as well. The fact that he took his family to church to the point where all of his children have those old-fashioned Sunday school medals they used to award in the Presbyterian church when you completed a year. They hung on your chest and they would attach and go all the way down. So uh, I think the week my grandfather passed, we ran into those medals of his from going to seven years of Sunday school as a child. That's a family legacy right there. That is a father being a father and taking his family to church. When a father comes to faith, there is an 80% chance the rest of their family will. When a mother comes to faith, there is a 20% chance their family will come to faith. If you don't think fathers are important, we are. This is a privilege. I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip. I'm trying to give you a pat on the back and a kick in the pants at the exact same time. A psychologist was trying to put together the fact how much of a girl's voice is in their father's, or the girl's inner voice or inner monologue is in her father's voice. In some cases, up to 60% of a grown woman's inner dialogue is in her father's voice. Did you know that? That is an immense amount of pressure as a father. The way you handle your relationship with your wife is the way your daughter will handle her relationship with her husband, what she will expect her husband to be. It's an immense amount of responsibility. And I almost quoted Yoda on accident. When you have a responsibility like that, you also have the ability to get things done. You have, a, you have a responsibility, but you also have the opportunity to shape someone's life. You have the opportunity to actually make the world a godlier place. And I'm very thankful for my father. I thought we had nothing in common until I became him which is hilarious, actually. <laughs> if you would ask me as a teenager, I had nothing in common with my father at all. Around the time I hit 35, I realized that I am him. I actually am almost exactly my father. He's still in better shape than me, but he worked with his hands. And I'm thankful for that. My father's a godly man, and I hope to be one of those. Because that has eternal value, and that's something that will last, and that is something that will matter. And on that note, If you can do so without pain, would you please stand with me? Father God, Father, I thank you that you have called us your children, that we get to call you Father. I thank you for the responsibility and the privilege of being a father. I thank you for all the men in this church that are fathers. I pray that you would teach us how to father. 
Father, I thank you for all the things that you have taught us to do correctly, and I pray that you would shape us into the men that will lead and that our choices will matter for generations. Father, we thank you and we praise you, and I thank you for the women in here as well, Lord, and for the mothers as well. I thank you for godly parents. Father, I pray that we would make much about you today. In Jesus' name, amen. See, I couldn't even get through a Father's Day thing without bringing up moms, could I? Which tells you, did you notice, and this is just a little side note, on Mother's Day, you try to find the right restaurant, you find a nice necklace, you buy flowers, right? On Father's Day, you sharpen the mower blades, you grill your own steak, and you probably go to a soccer game. Just putting that out there. It's an imbalance. All right, you ready, Chad?